The adults in my family stayed together despite plenty of issues, so my primary exposure to divorce was through celebrity news. Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise, Brittany and K-Fed, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston were all couples that the magazines would fawn over when they got together. But when they broke up, candid photos would be analyzed to no end as paparazzi tried to sniff out a story of heartache and bad blood. On one hand, the celebrity divorces highlighted the awfulness of divorce. The lover turned enemy where someone betrayed the other. On the other hand, the frequency of celebrity divorces also made it seem incredibly normal. So normal, in fact, that my sister and I advised a contingency plan. Our parents had a habit of regular and loud arguments, and although they never seriously considered divorce, we as their children felt it was a real possibility. So we had a discussion to decide which parent we would live with when they came around to divorce. We even decided who would get to keep the house. Who needs lawyers when you have proactive kids? It might sound unusual, but for us, it seemed like a strangely logical step to take. We thought it'd be easier for our parents, a chance for them to find happiness separately. In a world where statistics show that more than 40% of first marriages end in divorce, it's become a common stage in the journey of romantic relationships. Welcome to Self-Help Junkie, the podcast where we explore the world of personal development through the eyes of book enthusiasts. I'm your host, Eric Ng, a communication coach and your resident bookworm. This season, we'll be focused on developing our romantic skills, but before we dive into the conversation with our guest, let's get a one-minute summary of Western history of marriage and divorce. Throughout human history, marriage has been a cornerstone of society, but so has separation. Marriage likely predates recorded history with early humans forming pairs for reasons like survival, companionship, and reproduction. One of the earliest recorded marriage laws, the Code of Hammurabi, recognizes marriage as a contract and allows for divorce under specific circumstances like infertility, adultery, incompatibility, or uncommonly, mutual consent. In ancient Greece and Rome, marriages solidified familial alliances and divorce required legal process, though it was more accessible to the medieval and renaissance period in Europe saw marriage often arranged for economic and social reasons, with divorce being rare and difficult to obtain. The Protestant Reformation brought about some changes making divorce more accessible. Fast forward to the 19th and 20th century, and we witness a shift towards love-based marriage, and in our contemporary era, divorce rates have risen globally. Laws have continued to adapt, addressing issues like property division and child custody. Additionally, same-sex marriage has become a civil right in many places. The history of divorce is a testament to the ever-changing dynamics of love, society, and culture. It's a reflection of changing attitudes towards the institution of marriage and the pursuit of individual happiness and fulfillment. And with that, let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very exciting guest on. Her name is Elizabeth Douglas, a determined attorney and founder of the Douglas Family Law Group. She's renowned for her advocacy in complex family law and divorce cases. And beyond law, Elizabeth is a car enthusiast, a culture lover, and an adventure seeker dedicated to making a positive impact on her clients and the community. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Erica. Hi, how are you? I'm doing really well today. And you said that you've had a really long day. What is a long day in the life of a divorce lawyer? A little different every day, but um, there's usually some court involved. Um, the mission of my firm is really to help to empower our clients to create the next chapter of their lives. Mm-hmm. So that can mean anything from depending upon what stage of the process you're working with the client. So for example, today, um, had some court, had some client consultations. Mm-hmm. We had some really settlement talks and negotiations to move the move the needle a little bit to help a particular client move forward in the process. I'm doing some podcasting with you, <laughs> some PR, some media. So my days are comprised of lots of different activities, but 
every day is an adventure. Um, I always feel like I have accomplished something if I have moved the needle a little bit in a positive direction mm-hmm. and check something off of my to-do list. Being a divorce attorney, obviously you're working with people who have a heightened state of emotions. How does that impact yourself and how do you keep those personal boundaries? I've been doing this for a long time. So I definitely have to say that in the beginning it was harder. Mm-hmm. Now it's I do a lot of mindset work on a personal basis, but also keeping things in perspective and being able to compartmentalize mm-hmm. because the attorney's role in the process, it's very important. You're an advocate right. for your client. Um, you're a cheerleader. Sometimes you feel like you're a partial therapist at times, right. but it's perspective. And our clients are counting on our team to really be able to be their best for them to advance their wishes. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like when you're on the airplane, um, they say you put your oxygen mask on first and then right. help others. I implement the same strategy. I've got to be good. I have to show up with 110%. So being able to compartmentalize some of the drama or the hard things that happen, or even just the intense emotion, like you said, um, it wouldn't be good for me to get down and say, you know what? Yes, this is that and get in the pity party. Whereas my job is to really empathize and to relate to the clients on a personal level, show them how the law works and keep them focused on moving forward and how they can really move forward in the way that they see fit and to create that next chapter. So that's how I do it. I mean, I'm totally human too. So of course I have feelings through the process, but I really try to keep work um, separate and focus on moving forward and really getting results for people that they're going to be happy with. Right. Because I I guess like for your clients, they can have a team around them. They can have a therapist that they're sharing the emotions with. But for you, you're trying to get the process to the end. The end, but of course, in an empathetic way. Mm -hmm. Um, But we always encourage our clients always to have um, the support of a mental health professional through the Mm -hmm. process, because even in the most amicable divorces, the reality is there's a change. Because unless you're crazy, no one gets married to say, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get divorced, divide (laughs) my assets, relocate our children or change the status quo, have my hope for happily ever after change. So even like I said, in the nicest of divorces, there's a change and it's good to have a neutral support from a trained uh, professional to help you through it. So that outlet alone really helps our clients to leverage certain aspects of the divorce for the mental health professional and then the legal side to us. Mm -hmm. And when people are initially approaching your firm for their services, what stage are they at? Are they like, I know this is what I want to do. or Are they still contemplating they're on the fence? It's a mix. Mm -hmm. Um, We work with people at all stages. For example, we work with a lot of people sometimes who aren't even sure they want a divorce, Mm -hmm. but they want to gather information about options or to thinking about what life could like in the process. Sometimes you meet with people who are in couples therapy and they're also trying to think about whether or not they're going to move forward with the marriage or not. Mm. And then other times you meet with people who are ready to go. They've thought about it. They want to commence the action. Or perhaps it's the flip side where they've been served with um, Mm. divorce proceedings and they didn't see it coming. So that's what makes each day so exciting and something different because we, we work with people at all different stages of the process. I've not really been around divorce in my life and I've seen other friends, parents who've gotten divorced, but I'm not, I haven't gotten up close and personal with it. (laughs) Yes. Very lucky for 
let's say that a person's approaching you and they're just looking at options. First off, that sounds very scary. I feel like divorce is one of those things where it's, it can seem very overwhelming. Um, so what information does a person need to know that divorce is right for them? Like what information do you present to that person? Well, knowing that divorce is right for you is a very personal matter. Mm. So I think we start, or I know that we start first with what's important to our individual client Mm. and our processes really listen first. Mm. I've done so many divorces and so has my team. If we wanted to have a non-personal approach, we could just chart out for someone what should happen. Right. And in our consultation, there is a portion where we're going to talk about the law and how it works. But the first portion is really getting to know that client and what's important to them. Mm. Um, our family and our relationships are so incredibly personal mm. that you can't use the same approach with every person. Like, you know, if you ever were in the situation, what you would want would probably look different than me if I were in the situation because mm-hmm. you have to have it so personal, you want a custom tailored approach. So the first thing is to find out what's important to that client. What are they interested in hearing about first? Mm-hmm. Because in divorce, there's two components to it. There's the financial component. Mm-hmm. And if you have children, there's the custodial right. component. And of course I should say three because there's an emotional component with that change. So we walk them through it and we talk about what's important to them. We focus first on what do they want to protect? What would they like to see the same? What would they like to see change or what do they want to work with? And we move Mm -hmm. on from there. I mean, you've worked with so many different people. What are the top reasons for people to choose to go through with this process? The top three to go through with it is typically either they've been served and they mm-hmm. their partner has told them that they're going to be making a change or right. they have thought about it and they're ready to move on to the next chapter or something's happened where they realize that the relationship is no longer serving them or meeting their needs and they want to pivot and they want to do it with grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the third reason would really just be that after some time, either they've tried mediation or they've tried couples therapy, it's really not working and they don't want to be stuck because mm-hmm. the worst thing you can do is have an issue, try to resolve it, know that you want to move forward and not do anything because you're stuck. When you're stuck, you get nothing accomplished. You're mm-hmm. just delaying the inevitable, which could be the beginning of a beautiful new future. Right, right. And that second reason that you were saying where they've, they've come to the conclusion that they would like to move on, is it is it because of differences in values? Is it because they are, I don't know, not getting the emotional satisfaction that they were getting previously. Like what, what, what's deteriorating in the relationship that's causing people to take that next step? It varies person by person. There's so many things. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the top reasons why people come to our office or why they want to get a divorce, it's usually, it starts with a breakdown in communication. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be communication and trust because that will erode towards the romantic side. That's usually mm-hmm. when infidelity happens or finances um, is another big one. Mm-hmm. Um, financially, they don't see eye to eye. Or you can use the example of like the person who makes $1,000, spent 1001 person who makes $1,000 right. and saves 997 of those dollars. Right. Those people collide when real life happens. Um, right. Sometimes it's issues... Um, with the way that they raise children. Mm. Sometimes it is as simple as they believe they've fallen out of love. Mm-hmm. Other times there's a pattern and course of abuse that can't be tolerated any longer. There's so many dynamics. I, I think about general relationships and mm-hmm. then add the commitments of marriage, 
Um, if you have children, family expenses, it becomes a pressure cooker when something's wrong. Right. And the first thing, though, that any of the problems start with, it's always, always, always an issue with communication. Um, and that can stem into someone's needs not being met, communication mm-hmm. stops, feelings are misinterpreted, but there's some breakdown that usually leads to the others. Unless mm-hmm. you're talking about something where there's like significant substance abuse or drug abuse, which is usually speaks for itself. Right, right, right. And seeing all of this, do you have advice for people who are just starting out in their marriages where you're like, if you do some of these things, you have a uh, a lower possibility of coming to see me one day? Yeah, you know, honestly, I think so. Um, I'm not a therapist, so I can't Mm -hmm. give therapeutic advice, Mm -hmm. but I will say sure that, yeah, it starts with the communication and being open. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that people tease me about, but I really do believe that prenups are romantic. And the reason I say that is not because you want to make someone feel threatened in some big, long document, but getting financially naked, Mm -hmm. that's a chance to really talk about the hard stuff. Prenups Mm -hmm. let you talk about how you spend, how you save. They let you talk about what's your real hope for the future. They let you talk about things like, okay, we're good now. Let's use a young couple. Young couple starting out, they're good. They've graduated from school, et cetera. No one's thinking about disability, death, mm. dismemberment, all those things that could happen. Right. But asking each other the tough questions like, all right, babe, what happens if you get hurt on the job and you can't mm. work? And maybe we're a two-income family and we're building, we're saving together for building our future and buying a home and all these things. That's a real situation. And it's tough when you get there. You might have different thoughts than your spouse. You can talk about some of those things ahead. Um, right. But taking the prenup scenario out of there, it's really communication. Your partner is your partner in love, your partner in crime, your partner in finance, your partner in future building. Mm-hmm. And when those things start to break down, even if you don't feel like it right away, resentments build up quickly. And a lot of times how we express ourselves can change at the different you know, dynamics of a relationship. Right. It's like when you go on your first date, uh, most cases, if you go on a first date and the person's going to need a second one, that means they've showed up, there's an attraction, you're happy, you're polite. That's not usually the date where you start talking about like all of your bad habits, (laughs) you know, your debt and your issues and like you were upset about the way you were treated when you were a child. That comes out later, right? So in the marriage, if you imagine that you are really tied to this person hundred percent, you've got to be able to talk Hmm. good, bad, ugly. You got to be able to deal with them when they are sick and their hair is not combed and, you know, they got laid off from their job or someone died those are the things that really strengthen the marriage or the relationship. So I think building on the relationship even before the engagement is important Mm. and being able to be your authentic self, the good, the bad, ugly, not the (laughs) one with the the real one. Right. Right. I I love the romance of the prenup. That's definitely, so my boyfriend and I, we did a relationship agreement a month in, we decided like, Hey, what is cheating to you? What is, um, like, how do you want to spend your dates? Like who plans the dates? How often are we doing something special? Like does staying in for a movie count as a date? Um, and just, even if we don't stick to it, it's a conversation that puts you in hypothetical situations that will likely happen. Like at least one of them will happen in the future. And at least you're aligned in the beginning and you can have those conversations. Like the second conversation is going to be much easier than the first one. First off, Erica, that's awesome. Um, 
<laughs> that that's courageous is great. It's important. And you're right, because those are the little things, even as simple as who plans the date. Hmm. After a while, those are the things that will really get on your nerves. <laughs> There's no yeah. you have an expectation and they don't. How yeah. did you come up with the idea? relationships, especially as you get older, you're like, I don't have time to be messing around with someone who has completely different views from me um, and different goals. And I want to have this conversation early on because I want the next person to be my long-term committed partner. So let's start now. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish more people would do that. And I Mm -hmm. think it just makes sense because the first thing is you have to sit down and know where you were going and what Mm -hmm. you want. Is what we tolerate and we want changes over time. For sure. I'm sure that if I went back to college me, the person <laughs> I was dating then would not be someone that I'd want to marry now. Right. right. So we just evolve and change. And that's super smart and having those conversations out. And that's one of the things that will help you, hopefully, to avoid ever being in divorce attorney's office. Mm-hmm. Unless you're doing something happy, like, you know, planning to build your family or doing surrogacy or adoption or something right. like that. Right, right, right. And I think what you said earlier, it really established an honest line of communication because we've had those conversations. We've kind of bared our souls and been very honest in that conversation. Makes it much easier to bring stuff up later on. Um, so as a person who gets to meet a lot of people at the end of their relationship, has this changed the way that you've seen marriage and has it changed your outlook on it? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> And that is a question that a lot of my friends actually ask me. Mm-hmm. Honest answers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, I am someone who is really analytical, mm-hmm. not just in my professional life, but my personal. And I'm also very clear on what are deal breakers for me and what I care about. But mm-hmm. I will say that sometimes being in a position to empathize in so many different situations that I might not have encountered gets me to think even more. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's in a positive mm-hmm. way. Because perhaps I've seen an issue in a completely different light from a different lens that will help me then take that and really relate it into my own life Mm -hmm. and see how I might have thought of something differently. And then other times it can be a little bit scary. Yeah, there's some scenarios, there are some stories or things that we hear in our office sometimes where it gives you pause and it makes you maybe not always trust as much as you could or you should, for sure. Right, right. I mean, it's the amount of information that you have, right? Like it always is changing your perspective. The institution of marriage invented a long time ago. Do you feel like it still fits in with the modern day, especially with the high percentage of divorce rates? I think it depends who, what, and on the couple, right? Mm. So I think that marriage is sacred. And personally, I believe in marriage. I think it's a great, great thing to the right person, Mm. right? And I think that as the constructs of marriage change and as we embrace marriage for all types of couples and individuals, that changes a little bit. But Mm -hmm. what I don't think that changes is the desire that the majority of humans have, no matter who you identify, um, how you identify or who is your partner, the majority of humans want to be loved, heard, Mm -hmm. and they want to have someone to have their back and be in their corner. That doesn't change. And I think that from a traditional notion, marriage is the closest you get to a defined situation, period. I know a lot of people out there are going to be like, no, you're nuts. You don't need a piece of paper. But it definitely is a commitment to another level. And that won't change. So I think we all have the need on some level to have your person, you know, like you want to find your person that may be. Right. Yeah. I, I think that even if people say like, oh, it's just a piece of paper, on a societal level, calling someone your husband or wife is 
it's different from a girlfriend or a partner. There's, even if it's just mental, it, it is there. There is a difference. Commitment, longevity, recognition. I mean, it sounds in society in general, a lot better to say, this is my husband than this mm-hmm. is like my daddy. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of rights that come along with being married. Like after the pandemic, I was dating someone who was a different nationality than me. And I couldn't, it was really difficult to prove that we had a relationship to be able to cross the border into Australia. And I, it just got me thinking to, if something happened and I was in the hospital and I needed someone to make decisions for me, if I was not married to my partner, that would mean that like they don't have a lot of the rights that you would if you were married. Well, that's absolutely true. Like, unless you had an advanced power of attorney or healthcare mm-hmm. proxy, they would not. And then even things as simple as if you were cohabitating with mm-hmm. your boyfriend and something happened to him or her, depending upon, your, your, you know, the name on the lease, mm-hmm. the family might be able to get you out of your own place right. and you wouldn't be the one to make any rights because let's say the person was estranged from their parents. Suddenly the hospital is looking for your next of kin and it's not you. Right. So that is a hard thing. And I think there's also how you inherit when someone dies. It's big about being married. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rights that pass down with social security, when you have children, et cetera, et cetera. So marriage still is a very strong, um, let's call it station, I guess, mm-hmm. in our society. For sure. Mm-hmm. Getting back to divorce. So let's say that someone has decided that they want to go through this process. As you're explaining things to people, what is there anything in the process that continually surprises people that they didn't think about when they initially started? The length of time. Mm-hmm. Because, ah. you know, when you watch a TV show, <laughs> depending upon what it is, people get the notion that, oh, yeah, if I have a, let's say, an uncontested divorce, right. it's a one, two, three, we sign here, we bring it to the court, they stamp off, we're divorced. Well, no. No. Uncontested divorce is simply, definitely a lot more simple and does take less time to get contested. The difference is that uncontested means there are no questions or issues of fact that you need the court to decide for you. Mm-hmm. You've agreed. It's simple. You can mm-hmm. file it. Contested means that there are. So you might need to have a trial or you might need the court to put you on track for exchanging discovery and making a decision. But even in the first scenario, there's a time frame associated with that. And it's mm-hmm. going to depend upon, frankly, how quickly you get your paperwork together. But then what does the court's calendar look like? So oh, wow. I've never seen a scenario where you go into court, like you can see sometimes in the movies, and you go in at nine o'clock and you're divorced by 12. <laughs> like, it totally doesn't exist. Right. So it's a much longer process than people expect it to be. Yeah. So I think it's the process. And then I think sometimes even the people who are super researched and informed or they have friends and family in the process, unless you've gone through it mm. and you've worked with a legal team that not only is skilled in the law, but they're skilled in the process, in making sure that you're informed, in dealing with people, in making sure that you feel comfortable with your mind, body, and soul – I think that there are an intense array of emotions that people don't realize they've been experience. Mm-hmm. Even the people who decided, like, let's say that you're the one who wants a divorce and you feel so great in that decision. I think some people misinterpret how they're actually going to feel through the process or when the relationship ends. Um, I think another is just the change. So, you know, sometimes we're in situations where we know we want it to be over, but we don't think the whole way through what it'll really be like when that happens. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to plan and have an idea. Like one of the questions I always start out with my clients is before we talk about the law, 
how do you envision this? If I had a magic wand, mm-hmm. what does the next chapter really look like? And then as we're going through, we re- we revisit that question. So in a year now, when the lawyers are gone or two years, what do you see that you want to be thriving? What does that look like? What do you look like? Where are you? And I think those questions are super important to help through the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that gives you a vision for what to do in the future rather than being stuck on the present of like how awful it is. And it's interesting that you're saying like one or two years, because I think the most similar thing that I could imagine this to is a breakup. And usually a breakup is one conversation you, you leave and that it's kind of over. Maybe there's like a period or a post-it note. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. I've never heard that. I've heard like text messages, but like posted. Oh my goodness. Um, But yeah, it's such a short process compared to this. And I remember breakups where the grief lasts like a month or two. But if it's, if the process of breaking up is a year or two years that gets just dragged on your kind of like, is this worth all this time and energy and emotional turmoil? Contested divorce is intense. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who says it's not, is not telling the truth. It's mm-hmm. definitely intense. You're right. Sometimes our clients do feel like it, it's a dragged out process and they just want it to be over. Right. But the more assets you have, the more issues with custody, the more things that there are to fight over that you can't agree on, mm-hmm. the more experts you need to be brought into the mix, the more of the court's calendar time there is, so the longer it takes. Um, so it can definitely be intense. Mm-hmm. So when someone is entering divorce, what advice would you give them? So you've said like planning ahead, envisioning what you want for your future is a big step. Is there anything else that people could do to prepare themselves for this? Think of it as a marathon and not a sprint, especially mm. in a divorce. So in a marathon, you condition yourself, you have information, you're, making sure your body's well, making sure that your mind is well, making sure that your sneakers are good, all those different things, right? <laughs> right. It, it's it's like that. And it's divorce as a whole. Um, at my firm, we have a team approach and we take care of our clients from the beginning to the end. We hold their hand every step of the way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we encourage them, like I mentioned earlier, mental health support, have a good group of friends and family, make sure you're eating well, make sure you're sleeping mm-hmm. enough, check in, like really check in with yourself because- if you burn out in the beginning, you right. can't make it to the end. And our goal is to have our clients thrive. And that starts at the very beginning. And it's, you know, thinking of it as a holistic approach. I'm imagining someone who's going through this and maybe they haven't been taking care of themselves because life gets in the way. You're adulting really hard. Maybe you have kids. And then if your partner isn't helping you out, you already have all of that. And then now you're taking on divorce as well as trying to take care of yourself. How does one manage all of that? Like, have you seen people successfully implement any solutions that like, are they asking for help? Like, how are they doing? How are they juggling all of this? Well, lots of people thrive and get through it. So the answer is all the time, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's like really checking in with yourself and mm-hmm. recognizing that divorce, it is the uncoupling or the unwinding of a dream that you had at one mm-hmm. time or an idea of the future and there's a change. So the choice that everyone who's getting a divorce has to make is, all right, whether it was me or the other person, a change is happening. Mm-hmm. So what do I do about it? Do I embrace it and try to move forward or try to get in check with myself, reach out, kind of combine a, a team to support me? 
or am I going to be stuck? And sometimes choosing to be stuck isn't a choice, but it's a moment that you have to give yourself grace to get through either way. Mm. So I think the most important thing is handling each stage with grace and allowing yourself to grieve. I mean, I think sometimes as people, we're just too hard on ourselves. Divorce is a big change. It's there's going to be a grieving period and that has stages to it. Um, The people that are able to navigate divorce the best are the ones who not only do they have good lawyers, but they have like a roadmap to the process. So their, Mm. their lawyers will give them a roadmap. They'll know what to expect for the most part. They're checking in with themselves. They're taking care of themselves emotionally, mentally, physically. They've got support and it doesn't have to be traditional support. You know, Mm. we can create, our support unit from different people. Different people can give you parts of what you need to get through a a hard time. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I think just in terms of if it's a litigated divorce itself, it's the people who can be realistic and recognize that acting on the moment in your emotion is never going to serve you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, you can be intense. There are certain times to fight for sure. There are other times where you have to realize in an actual settlement, no one gets 100% of what they want. So once you can separate some of your initial emotion, anger, upset, you know, depending upon the reason, everyone has different emotions about divorce. But if you can separate some of that from the fact and the reality and the long-term picture, the long-term picture is always better than the short-term. And in the moment, like when you, if you're the person who didn't want the divorce, in that moment, that's not the time to settle. That's the time to stay and think and then get guided through the process, right? It's also not the time to say anything drastic or harsh because you need to heal yourself, mm. get yourself to change and move forward. Those are things that always help people to thrive in the process. Right. And one of the things that I saw on your website is that you work with women. <laughs> we, we work with men and women. Okay, and cool. actually, we've been working with more men than women because ah. we really help amazing dads um, who want to be meaningfully involved in their children's life or even get custody for dad. Right. So work with men and women. Okay. And that's a, that's something that I've heard just in the sphere of, I don't know, people talking is that usually in divorce, women tend to get the children. Is that still the case? Is that a misconception or is that true? Total misconception. That's like old news. Okay. So (laughs) that's good to hear. Yeah. Back in the day, traditionally, especially when the the model was different, like where more women stayed at home. Mm. And then there used to be something called the breastfeeding doctrine, right? Which essentially said in a nutshell that custody would go to mom because if mom had to breastfeed, the child Mm. couldn't be separated. This was a long time ago. But now, now we have a ton of amazing fathers who make great dads or make great equal parents. The standard is the best interest of the child standard. Mm. So it doesn't say the best mom or, you know, it says the best which is coupling the parents' strengths, weaknesses, their mm-hmm. involvement in the children's lives, et cetera. And the default these days usually is 50-50, mm-hmm. and then you can go from there. So definitely not just mom anymore, not taking away from the awesome moms who are still out there, right. but there are some awesome dads too, and may the best parent win. So when it comes to other misconceptions, are there any other big misconceptions that people have walking in and like ask you about? I guess another gender one is that the, the the mom always keeps the house and that she'll she'll receive support for her whole life. Right. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, especially now in this day and age, you have women, more women who are the primary bread earners than we mm. did in the past. Um, so maintenance is not gender specific um, anymore. Um, other misconceptions. I, I think the funniest ones, though, are when people come in and they think that like their Google search has told them the accurate law. 
or they've seen something like on a show like Jerry Springer or something and you have to like <laughs> right. reality is or then you always have the person who has I had a friend who had a friend and they got x so I should get x no and there's <laughs> there are certain things too that are just based on formula right. like there's no mystery around child support child support is a formula it's the combined parental income people are mm. often shocked to hear that no, it's not just like dad. It's mom's income, dad's income, minus taxes multiplied by the number of children you have, but the percentage wow. for the number of children. Right. So I think those are some of the basics. Wow. Yeah, I guess so much of our knowledge of law is from TV and probably not the best place to, to be getting this. Or a friend, of a friend of a friend whose great aunt got divorced one time in some, like, in some place <laughs> and that's the knowledge. For sure. Are there any alternatives that you suggest to people who like coming in and they're not quite sure? Is there anything that you ask them to explore? Yeah. Um, I always ask the question if they have explored the option of couples therapy mm. to, un- to kind of discuss what the issues really are and if they can be solved. Mm. Um, I'm not a divorce pusher. I'm a damn good divorce attorney, but I <laughs> want to work ready, right? If right. you can save your relationship, you should try. Um, if it's good and not toxic, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't believe that anyone should be in a situation that's toxic um, just because they're married, because that doesn't make sense. But right. if there's something worth saving or if you haven't tried to do any of the work and you can salvage a good relationship, you should try. That would be the first thing, I think. And how would you, let's say that you were in a toxic relationship, let's say narcissism. What mm-hmm. would you recommend for that person? Like, how do you deal? How do you go through a divorce with a narcissist? Because I imagine there's a lot more to it than an amicable one. Narcissism is an actual diagnosable mental condition. Mm -hmm. And divorce with a narcissist is super tough. Mm -hmm. So it is divorce on its own with a mentally healthy person is rough. Mm -hmm. When you couple someone like a narcissist with it, it's even more tough. It's tremendously negative impact on the children, if there are any, tremendously negative impact on the person who wants the divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, If they've initiated, they're the plaintiff because narcissist, usually that will yield narcissistic injury, Mm -hmm. which opens up a whole can of worms. And, you know, the non-narcissist has to deal with the flying monkeys, the attacks, the campaigns, Mm -hmm. the behaviors, the prolonging, protracted litigation. You always see that. Um, co-parenting with a narcissist is even harder than co-parenting potentially angry, soon-to-be ex-spouse. So in those instances, it is important to work with a legal team who has experience dealing with a narcissist Mm -hmm. because another thing, too, is that like typically attracts like. So narcissists will typically find attorneys who support that type of behavior Mm -hmm. or similar to them, which can increase litigation costs, which can make the litigation last longer and longer. Right. Um, and there's so many personal attacks. People who are divorcing a narcissists 100% need to have um, a strong support system, for sure. And they need to keep copious notes, be right. careful, be guided, recognize some of the patterns of narcissists are so recognizable after a time that you can start to anticipate what they might do. Mm. Um, their behaviors affect settlement negotiations all the time. Um right. A lot of a lot of things to be proactive about. Uh-huh. And you were mentioning co-parenting. So you say that it's more difficult co-parenting with a narcissistic ex-spouse. Oh what? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Tell yes. me more. <laughs> well, there's so many things because 
a lot of the time, a, tr- a true narcissistic co-parent wants to make the other parent's life miserable because mm-hmm. narcissists do not support anything that's not on their agenda mm-hmm. and they don't really have empathy. So mm-hmm. the, the typical narcissistic MO is what serves them at the moment until they discard and find a new source, right? right. So a lot of times in custody, the narcissist themselves because they don't typically have the ability to love like a normal um, human or a non, a person who doesn't have those issues, they typically use the children as pawns more. Mm. Um, They come up with things that are not in the child's best interest because their selfish nature is first. So they'll fight you on things that are basic. Um, There's a lot of extra work for the non-narcissist parent too, in that they often have to compensate for the narcissist's inability to really meet the child's needs. Mm -hmm. So it's double work. Um, What else? If you say that, you know, for example, if they know something about you, like let's say that they know, right, Erica has certain work hours and Mm -hmm. it would really help her that I picked up little Bobby from Mm. soccer on Wednesdays. They're on shore on purpose going to make sure that Wednesday could never happen, right? Right. Do anything to kind of make it harder for you. Right, right, right. So it's very vindictive, right? Very vindictive. There's a lot of lies. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the term flying monkeys. No. Flying monkey is a typical uh, term um, associated with narcissists. And it's when they spread their venom to other people who might know you to help deliver lies about you Mm. or to smear campaign your name and sabotage you. A lot of that will happen in divorce. And it can happen from sources that you would be surprised with. Maybe you had people that were common acquaintances or friends who you thought right. might have been good. And now they hear a part truth and they take the narcissist story because the narcissist right. always spins things like they are the victim. So it's a lot to navigate on top of the legal process, which can be daunting. Right. Yeah. I'm remembering some of the breakups that my friends have had and it's spreading inf- false information. It's stalking. It's all this. Yeah. But back to the co-parenting part. So this is an example of a terrible situation where parents are, or like one parent is trying to weaponize, um, parenting. Um, when it comes to healthy co-parenting, I'm guessing you see a lot of that as well. Um, what does that look like? What does healthy co-parenting look like? Healthy co-parenting is amazing mm-hmm. and it's goals. Like, you know how they say relationship goals? Yeah. Healthy co-parenting is divorce goals, divorce with children goals for mm-hmm. sure. That looks like remembering to keep the children's best interests first. Mm-hmm. That looks like separating the adult issues and the adult junk from the kids, mm-hmm. right? We're all aware that we're getting a divorce now. The adult relationship broke down. That's a fact. But it should not interfere with each person's ability to be the best parent they can be because mm-hmm. they're going to be the parent to their child until they take their last breath. That's a forever right. job. Right. So it thinks about keeping your child's best interests first, not making decisions based in anger or personal attacks, making sure that your child never feels like they have to choose between you and the other mm. parent, making sure that like, for example, let's say that your kid goes to the other parent's house and they have a great weekend. <laughs> they shouldn't be afraid to tell you that they had a great weekend because right. somehow you're upset or jealous or cry or whatever it is. Um, it's being flexible and reasonable because even though you're divorced, you're still a family because you have kids. Right. So things will happen. Like don't 
refuse to accommodate if someone's got to work late and you could help them out. Don't refuse to switch your weekend just because it's your weekend and you have no plans, like little crappy things, you know, like be the adults, think about your child, think about the blessings that your child will have Mm. when they feel comfortable in both homes where they know that, okay, you know what? Both of my parents love me. They have different homes. Maybe they even had different partners, but now you could get the benefit of that bonus family as opposed to vindictive and scared. Right. And I imagine there's still a lot of teamwork, even if you're not married anymore, just co-parenting means like, okay, the rules have to be similar in our houses. It can't be like completely different because that will change the child's perspective. And yeah, it's not fair to them. Again, it's co-parenting goals, right? right? Because everyone has different styles and there's reasons why you got divorced that might affect how you parent. Mm-hmm. But in general, it comes to communication, keeping mm. your child's best interest first. Um, sometimes it's not possible to have exactly the same rules in both houses. Mm-hmm. But kids thrive with stability. Mm. So maintaining that stable environment for them is important. And making sure that you're both going to parent-teacher conferences and understanding the workload and trying mm. to come up with something. But even though you're separate homes, having a unified front is important because the kids always need to know that you're still their parents and they're there. The worst thing you can do is let the kids kind of infiltrate that and then think that they can play the parents against each other. Mm-hmm. That's not good. So teamwork is the both parents coming together, realizing like, we don't have to talk about us, but let's talk about our child or our children and how can we help them thrive? How can we give them a united approach about things like general discipline mm-hmm. or you know, school, college, going to school, not jump, not dropping out, not cutting class. Right, those right, things. right, right, right. You're still being a parent, making sure that they know the rules and they have an authority to rebel against in their teenage years. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> oh, so we're coming to the end of our podcast. Do you have any last words for our audience today? Yes. Take the moment to think about how you can thrive, whether you wanted the situation to happen or not, and then really think about what you need to be good. And Mm. don't feel that you need to be something to everyone. Sometimes in the moment, you take that first moment, you think about what you need, put your oxygen mask on first, and then help others. Mm -hmm. So that's That's what I would say. That's beautiful. And if people are looking for you, where can they find you? They can find me on my website at douglaslaw.com on the phone, 914-615-9058. Social media, we've got TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the the platforms. Mm -hmm. So check us out there. Yeah. And I'll make sure to link it all down below so people have it very easy to access. Thank you so much for being on today. It was really fun talking to you about all these very important aspects of divorce. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more, check out episode 13, where my boyfriend and I go over the relationship agreement that was mentioned in this episode. And if you've listened all the way to this part, you probably enjoyed the episode. So go to your app and give me a rating. That's okay. I'll wait. Lastly, if you want to suggest a topic, please reach out on Instagram. I'm also planning for the next season's topic, so I need help deciding. Find me on self-help junkie pod on Instagram, Twitter, or Gmail. I'll see you guys next time.